For this episode of the Carlisle Podcast, I'm joined by freelance football journalist Richard Buxton. Richard has worked for a who's who of international media outlets from the FA, Goal, ESPN and La Gazzetta Dello Sport, which I think is particularly cool given that I'm currently reading a book called The Miracle of Castle di Sangro, which covers the significance of the paper in Italy. So I, I thought that was really cool. Now, Richard recently published his first book, Fine Margins, which explores the rivalry between Manchester City and Liverpool, which of course has become definitive for the Premier League title over the last few seasons. The cover features a wonderful image of one of my favourite defenders, John Stones, pulling out that goal line clearance I'm, I'm sure we need little reminding of. Uh, so, Rich, I'm really glad we've got round to having this conversation and, and that we're not freezing outside the park end for the change. Um, I appreciate you taking the time. And before we get on to your career uh, and the book itself, which I'm really looking forward to hearing about, um, what has your take been on football since the restart and of course 2021 now that's up and running it's been strange i can't lie max it's been surreal especially since we you know the behind closed doors games have been uh in effect and i mean i think it's definitely noticeable at goodison of all places that you know as you know you know we all gathered at the park end after the games to sort of vent our feelings for general scene you can't even get near the park end at the moment um you can't even get in the ground as a reporter until about an hour before kickoff. Um, so, whereas I'd normally be around Goodison, you know, four or five hours beforehand, going into St. Luke's, going and catching up with some of the lads in the fan zone and stuff like that, you can't even do that. It's literally like it's so sanitised. You've got to go in, mm. temperature check, face mask, a lot of questionnaire if you haven't done already, go to the press box where you sit in a socially distant seat, and. You know, it's strange when you see people you, you've known for 10 years and, and you can't really stand and talk together. I think I've had probably two conversations in about 15 matches I've been to because everyone's just sort of in their own little, not so much bubble, but they're all sort of in their own little world because, you know, you, you've got less time to do stuff. You know, you don't have to be the press conferences in, in person anymore. So, you know, there's a lot of us running back to our cars in Stanley Park to try and get the laptops fired up and, and watch a Zoom meeting. Um mm-hmm. When I'm clocked in, the other managers speak. So stuff like that is strange. But also, I think the games as well are very, very strange. I think, you know, there's not really any rhyme or reason to them, which I think is a good thing, personally. I mean, I wrote a piece this week saying as much about, you know, VAR, OK, it's intentious, but referees haven't got the cop or the strip for them screaming at them and, you know, swaying them one way or another. Mm. So you're getting probably a fair balance on that. Teams aren't playing with, with fear, which I know is a factor for certain clubs, especially Everton. You know, you look at the way... I think probably when you've got the, the crowd on your back at Everton, if you're an Everton player, that's as bad as having, you know, a, a full stadium somewhere else on, the, on your back. So I think having that freedom helps. Um, not everybody play, plays like that. I think some clubs have, have struggled a little bit with it. But I think the fact that there is no rhyme or reason to these results, it seems to be a bit of a, a free throw. It's good. But at the same time, what you're getting in terms of entertainment and unpredictability, you're losing without the fans. I mean, Goodison is so strange now with Zed cars ringing out and no one you know, roaring it on, every goal that go hits the net, you're not hearing the God of Street, you know, basically greeting the revelation, you know, it's the same at Overground, it's strange not having fans in, and that's the biggest trade-off with this, so, for all the excitement you get and all the unpredictability, you're losing so much about the fans, and that is ultimately what, 
what you know is missing from this. It doesn't feel like football. It feels more like a, te- a test tube environment. I think. Mm. Yeah, I, I could understand that. And from what I'd be obviously with you, you covering games, what I'd be be, in, be interested to hear about is that obviously you've sort of likened it to a, like a test tube environment, and I've heard people refer to it as like it's almost like watching training games uh, at times. So from a player's perspective, um, what have been the most interesting takeaways from watching players? You've obviously mentioned that you see players playing, you know, without fear. Um, I was speaking to Andy Gray recently. who said, you know, you've got, you know, there's two sides to that coin. Some players, you know, work well without the crowds on the back, whereas others sort of thrive um, with the sort of amped up atmosphere uh, and, uh, and the noise. So from a sort of technical perspective, when, when you're sort of watching these players perform, what, what, what's been your main observations? I think the players are, 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 are more happy to be vocal mm-hmm. when there's no crowd there, which I thought would have been the opposite effect. I thought players would be quiet there. I thought they'd be a bit more subdued. I thought it, you know, they'd be passing instructions between each other rather than screwing them across the pitch. Um, and one of the biggest things has been Jordan Pickford. I mean, how many times he berates with Charleston? <laughs> and all tracking back and stuff like that, and you know, I, I mean, I've you know, you watch games and you, and you don't notice it then. Uh, obviously, maybe because because you, you know you got forty thousand people screaming along with him, but you don't have to notice how much you know controlling players doing. You even look at like stuff like um, the this James Coleman, um, Kieran Gibbs incident with the Everton West Brom game where he went off and said, I'll, "I'll do it again to him about James Rodriguez," and and Coleman's giving it back to him, and you you think. That's the sort of thing that you don't get to pick up on mm. unless, you know, you've got a lip reader or, you, you know, someone's got a picture microphone. So you don't really pick up these things as much. So, but in terms of technical aspects, I think probably, you know, you, you see players, I think because it is so routine, it is so mundane. I think players sort of, I don't think they play up to it as much as they do when there's a crowd there. I mean, you look at, I mean, some teams, and we won't, you know, go into detail about who they are, but some teams do seem to thrive on, you know, the crowd aspect of it. And, you know, do seem to play up to it a bit, um, even, you know, fuel it to a degree. Um, and you're not getting that at the moment, especially with stuff like the VAR being scrutinised, you know, as I say, not having, you know, 10,000, 12,000 people screaming in your face. It's helping the referees. You'll still get the ones who are, who are characters, should we say, like Mike Dean and people like that. But you're also getting a bit of balance because there isn't this pressure that if you give us against one team on the home ground, there's going to be rapture. I mean, I've been at games where that's happened. I think the one that sticks out for me was um, the Liverpool Tottenham game in 2018. And I think John Moss basically bottled it over giving a penalty, um, which was um, interesting because they got about a couple of minutes later, they ended up giving one for the similar foul. Well, similar breach, it was an offside ruling. Um, and he gave it, and Anfield just turned nasty. And, you know, he did wonder when he'd done that. I mean, it. You know, I think referees would look at that now and think, oh, I don't fancy that. I mean, it got really, really horrible. I mean, I remember uh, I had to go and speak to Major South Police after the game because there were Liverpool fans around me screaming anti-Semitic abuse because of the penalty being given against them. So, you know, referees do feel the pressure, especially. And, you know, we touched upon it in March. Chris Kavanagh sending off Ancelotti and disallowing a late Everton goal against United. Um, you know, you know how much pressure is applied to him being from the Manchester area. So, I think stuff like that isn't as magnified when there isn't support in the ground. I think stuff like that, you know, kind of falls on, on the secondary tier, whereas, you know, referees can sort of look at things objectively as opposed to, you know, thinking, well, if I get this one wrong, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to end up, you know, 
having stuff sent around to, to me, my house and to my parents' house. And, you know, that's the thing. I think not having supporters involved does sort of reduce that sort of aspect of it. So from the officiating point of view, more than the technical aspect, I think you're seeing more of a... I wouldn't say a fairer game. I think some teams probably are handicapped because they don't have that sort of part of support that sort of gives them that extra 10%. But at the same time, you know, it's probably the closest thing to a level playing field we've had for a long time. And, you know, probably going to throw up the most unpredictable season since Leicester won it in 2016, which for me is a good thing because this whole top four, top six order, and, you know, the usual suspects being in the relegation dogfight, sort of, it gets a bit boring, especially mm. if you're covering the Premier League week on week. You know, I don't like having to write, you know, my United have done this or City have done that or Liverpool have done the other, you know, ad for anything. Whereas I think if it was in the usual um, surroundings, you know, with fans in there and, and everything being back to normal, I think you'd probably have a lot more of that sort of tired narrative. So it's good in that respect. But obviously, as I say, the trade-off is, you know, we'll lose a thing to be whole day, which is having fans there. Yeah, definitely. And the, that... The, the top six narrative is something definitely that we'll touch on when discussing your book. But before getting to the book, as you know, I, I'm really eager to hear about different career routes within football and in particular football media. And I feel like, it's just obviously from my own sort of subjective observation, that you are, you know, in fairness, one of the good guys in journalism. How did things get started for you? And are there any sort of significant milestones along the way which you really thought, right, uh, I'm on path uh, and I know where I'm going here? Well, I mean, I like to think I try and be a good guy and try and help people out where they can, you know, offer advice and stuff like that because, you know, people have been in my position uh, or I've been in their position before, so obviously I don't like to see people being, you know, left to struggle. But um, my sort of path started in a weird sort of way. I started... um, I'm probably one of the few journalists whose career starts out on MySpace. Um, I was in a in between jobs and sort of just writing just for the sake of it, really, just throwing stuff out there. And there's a guy called Andy Teasdale. He was um, he's written for quite a few magazines. He's originally from from up, up north, and he just said sent me a message one day and said, "I don't know if you've thought about this as a career, but you've got something there. Stick at it. You know, you never know where it might lead." Um, didn't really give it much thought at the time uh, and just kept going between jobs and then I ended up um, doing a 12 month stint working in the NHS and sort of just basically having work but then I was getting to the point where I thought I felt like it was getting a bit predictable a bit tired and I thought you know I was 21 at the time and I thought you know I don't really want to be doing this when I'm 30 you know so I thought I might take the leap so I basically took the risk of leaving the NHS basically giving up a full time job you know guaranteed wage um, to summon it as a student to do me um, NCTJ. Um, so I did that and then that finished in summer 2009. And it was, I think, a lot of things in journalism are down to luck. And I did get a slice of luck because someone did come to me and say, um, there's a news website called Click Liverpool and they're after football reporters. And I think you'd be great for this. So give it a go. Um, so he made the reference point. I got in touch with um, a guy called Chris Johnson, who's no longer with us, who was the editor of Mercury Press, but they also ran um, a clip of the website at the time. And after a few weeks of just basically hammering out articles left, right and centre, or, you know, basic news report, um, he brought me in and said, um, you know, we'll give you a few tips at Mercury Press so to syndicate stuff to the national newspaper. I said, that's fine, but on grounds of, of, of morals and decency, you're not syndicating in my way because it's a newspaper. 
He said, fine, okay, right, we'll set up a, a distribution list for you that does include the sun of the news of the world. So perfect. So I had a few bits to go in the, the mirror, in the Daily Express, Daily Star. Um, what else? A couple of things that went on, sourced by, um, by women's magazines and stuff like that. It was just basically, you know, general sort of news hand stuff and, you know, picking up interviews with people and bringing people up and... Um, one of the first ones I had to do, which was a big splash, we had to get a, uh, a comment on Everton for a story someone had brought to our attention about the um, there was an advertisement for ab- absinthe in the family enclosure at Goodison, and basically, you know, it was frowned upon because of obviously how powerful it was. Right. And I, I had to be the one who had to ring up Ian Ross and say, Ian, we need a comment on this, and basically got verbals about, I know you, you are, and I knew this was coming, this, that, and the other. And I said, um, well, have you removed it? Uh, yeah, we've removed it. I said, well, can, can you explain why? Well, we don't have to, and then the phone down. So uh, that was a crash course in, uh, in journalism that, you know, yeah. you, you sometimes have to go along lines where you, you do piss people off who you, you have to work with. And I think a matter of weeks later, I was, uh, I was hiding in the press room with Goodison, making sure I didn't encounter Ian Ross, because obviously knew who I was and, and knew what I was doing there. So, um that was uh, an interesting start to my career. And then uh, from there, it kind of got a bit uh, fuzzy because even though I was doing stuff at Cliff Liverpool, I was, was on a freelance contract and they didn't tell me for all two years. So basically, they made me work two years non-stop. And basically, you know, I ain't what, what I ain't, but the chance of freelance and stuff to branch out was uh, was denied to me until I think about... I, think I basically said to Chris Johnson that I'm not happy with it. You know, I'm getting nothing here uh, in terms of like making money and you know making sure to live on I'm going to call it a day and he threw this thing about you know you do realise you're freelance you can work for anyone else and I was like what so well, why didn't you tell me that two years ago and it was similar to the Ian Ross thing you know well I'm telling you now and it was like okay right so I was already two years behind the curve um, so I started trying to, trying to get gigs with other people uh, while also doing the stuff for Murphy and for Cliff Liverpool um, but obviously when you, you kind of mind yourself into a hole where you just cover me football there's sort of not many places you can go um, but one good thing was that because of the the Premier League accreditation system and because Murphy was an agency you can branch out to other clubs so you know there's a chance to go and do stuff like when Wigan and Bolton were Premier League clubs you could go to there um, but obviously Manchester City was just coming up at the time as well so you know that was just before they won the title so for the two seasons before they well the season and a half before they won the title I started doing Man City and um, one week and we brought the next because we had a we had a dedicated Everton reporter at the time. So, you know, I had to do, do other two. Um so that was my way of sort of diversifying my writing style and also as well. When you get out of that bubble of covering one club religiously, you sort of see things objectively, you know, stuff that was going on at Liverpool, I'd see it at City and it wouldn't be as, as profound, you know, it wouldn't be as you know as big a talking point, mm-hmm. even though City had had all this money um and had this, you know, this proper players that were coming up. Um, so, you know, it was a good way of getting a good grounding in terms of, you know, seeing the other side of the coin. Um, and they were great times, Cubs and City, because obviously Sergio Guerrero would come in, David Silver had been um, around for a season and a bit. And funny enough, I asked you, one of the biggest uh, moments that I remember from that time was I saw the Guerrero's debut uh, against Swansea. He scored two goals and the last one was just absolutely sublime. Uh, it was so good that I had I mean, I, I, I wasn't driving then, so I had to try and bomb it back to uh, Oxford Road Station to get the train home to Liverpool. But uh, 
it was worth nearly missing it for that because it was just one of those moments that sticks with you and you think, wow. Mm. Um, so from there, you know, I kept trying to build and build and build, but obviously I was sort of at a foot in both camps, I had a foot in the Liverpool camp and a foot in the City camp. Um, until middle through that, that sort of tight winning season for the City, um, the Everton reporter at Murphy Press left and basically there was an opening there for me to, to cover Everton, you know, fortnightly, um, weekly press was that sort of thing and I mean, it's interesting that the press dynamic on Mary's side with the two clubs because they're very different. I mean, Everton, where uh, at that time you were getting radio breakouts, you were getting paper breakouts, you were getting Sunday breakouts. Well, Liverpool, Everton was all in, so you weren't getting anything that you could hold back. Everton was out in the open the second it left the manager's mouth. So Everton was, was good in that respect, similar to City, because you did have those sorts of traditional um, barriers and those embargoes and stuff like that. So that helps. In terms of obviously, you know, understanding that not everything has to be fast paced, it has to be out in five seconds flat before some kid on Twitter put it out. So <laughs> that helped. And then obviously from there, you know, you start developing. Um but I mean I've I mean I've kind of stayed loyal to Clicker before because I mean it's changed hands ownership wise a few times, but also there's been a chance to sort of, you know, there's been a freedom to do what you want to do in terms of what games you want to cover and that sort of thing, and it's a steady flow away. Um but obviously I've done stuff for other people. I did uh, a bit for um, a company who were supplying content to Marker and the, the Gazette Stella Sport English portals. Uh, I think Marker's are still going, but Gazette's went a few years ago. Um, and then I started doing stuff for like papers in the in the Middle East and the Far East and that sort of thing. So and it's just basically just a case of picking up what you can where you can really. That's that's sort of how my career's panned out. It's been, you know, stroke of force June. I mean, I got lucky with one paper that uh, a guy I knew was writing for them and then he left, I think, a month before I approached him. Um, and I didn't know that at the time. He kind of kept that one quite quiet. So I was fortunate that I wasn't treading on his toes because I did say, I'm not, I don't want to be treading on his toes. Mm. Uh, and they went, well, don't worry, you know, he's, he's gone basically, so don't worry about it. And then, uh, you know, opportunities sort of come and go. There's not really, you know, the freelance life's tricky because it's not, it's not constant work. You know, you get regular work from some people, but you might not hear from others for months. Mm. or even, you know, a year or whatever. So, you know, it is, it's tough being freelance and it's probably as tough when you've had a sort of two-year um, hold on your career that you didn't even know about. So yeah. it's been interesting, but I mean, I think, you know, it, there's always a challenge with this sort of thing. I think you'd be best, you'd be preferred to have a full-time office job with a paper or with a magazine or whatever, or a website, as opposed to doing this, because it is quite stressful at times. No, that, that's really interesting to hear. And I think... You know, I, I resonate with a lot of that, certainly when it comes to the sort of monotony of repetition and, and, and that sort of environment, that sort of, you know, the, the, the freedom and creative expression is something that really I am looking to, to pursue. And in regards to what you said about the morality of papers, that's something that I really did want to talk about because in terms of creative expression, I, I've always been considerably better at written communication and writing compared to verbal communication but um given the the current climate for example you know given what the most read paper in the country is um i've pursued obviously podcasting a lot more i feel like it's a more um you know a more central medium uh, and i'm one of those that you can get a, a balanced message out there obviously it, it's not sort of submitting to club clickbait or anything of that nature and what interested me, obviously, it's a completely different environment now with the sort of death of papers, if you like. 
Uh, I, I was writing for a for a network, um, and I don't know what it is. I, I think it might just be my sort of competitive nature, if you will. I, I did cover obviously. I'm, I'm predominantly you know Everton based. I cover a lot to do with Everton, but I, I branched out a fair bit. Um, I covered Arsenal, Chelsea, um, a bit about MMA as well. Um, but the, once I sort of got a bit of perspective on, on the company and I, and I saw, you know, who else writes for the company and the amount of articles that they turn in in order to, to earn a wage off the company, it just made me think, again, maybe it's me competitive nature sticks kicking in that uh, um, I'm not really going to get anywhere here if, uh, unless I sort of submit to, to clickbait and whatnot. Um, that's not to say I'm completely abandoning writing because I do enjoy it once I'm in the flow of it and as I said, I feel like I'm better than that then than anything else. Uh, I'd just be interested to, to hear your perspective on what's changed or sort of, you know, the, with the digital revolution and, and the culture of journalism over the last 10 years and how is it that you maintain your integrity? I think basically to stick to your principles and, you know, stick to what you believe, you know, don't write something for the sake of it or don't write something because, you know, it's popular to say, you know, sometimes, you, you know, you need to sit your head above the parapet. So, um, and I've done that quite a few times. I've stuck, you know, I've said that how I feel about things and, you know, what I agree with and disagree with. And I've used, you know, evidence to back that up if I need to. Um, I think the thing is, I mean, I learned quite early on that basically uh, transfers and stuff like that are tricky um, things to have any sort of moral compass with because if you're getting it from sources and they could be, you know, really solid sources, they might be occasionally be getting stuff, you know, Drip through to sort of cat you out, mm-hmm. um, which has happened to me a couple of times. I think I had, you know, a couple of sources, especially on sort of transfer stuff around the, the two the two major side clubs, um, and I got sold short on two stories by two separate sources at, at different times, um, and you know every other story, you know that, that came from their tip off stood up, absolutely hundred percent credible, you know well sourced, you know the clubs didn't really want to put anything into sort of. Right now, they said, you know, we don't comment on speculation, but basically, if you want to run it, we're not going to go after you. Um, which is normally the sign of you've done something right, whereas with the East, it was like, well, that's wrong, and we could probably, we would be within your rights to sort of take it to the, you know, the PGC, as it was at the time, the Press Complaints Commission. So, you know, um, that was when I sort of, it became a bit of a wake-up that, you know, even when people are well-intentioned, you know, someone is trying to stick you up on the line or stick them up. So, in terms of sticking to your sort of, I mean, I think this is why I just kind of stick to the factual stuff rather than, you know, speculative stuff or stuff that, you know, has a sort of 50-50 chance of being right or wrong. Mm. Um, so, you know, stuff like presses, stuff like games, stuff like, you know, giving an objective view. So um, I think that's probably the best way to sort of be. I think a lot of people try and make a name for themselves. And I think they see people like, uh, you know, these Twitter experts, these transfer experts, you know, you look like um, Fabrizio Romano, who does stuff at The Guardian, very reputable. Um, but then you got, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got that Nico Shearer, who's also Italian, but as you know, complete cancer, complete child, and he's never had a byline in his life, um, an incredible um, news organisation. But, you know, he's made he's made a career, if you could call it that, of, you know, selling bullshit on Twitter. And, you know, I mean, obviously, if you've got that platform, you can sort of build it into something. Um, but obviously, he hasn't. He's just, you know, running his mouth with, with, with stuff like that. And, you know, he's a bit of a joke in the industry. And, you know, there's others like him. Um, 
And, you know, I've had conversations where there's been journalists who have been absolutely ripped apart by, by the colleagues in the press team. Um, I, won't, I won't name them, but obviously they're sort of, you know, people will know who they are. And they've been ripped apart with an earshot of other journalists. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's basically become like an open season, sort of like a split playground stuff. But, you know, I mean, people are entitled to, to feel that way when they see people just, you know, taking the piss and, and doing the bidding of others, essentially. Um, so I think as long as you, you sort of stick to, to your values and, you know, if that's what's thinking of, well, you know, would you would, would you stand on the street on a, with a sandwich board with, with that, what you put on Twitter or what you put in an article? Yes or no? And if you don't, if the answer's no, then then don't do it. I mean, there's been stuff I've wanted to say on Twitter and in articles, but you can't say it. You can't, you know, with the comeback in terms of, you know, the abuse you get, the potential legal threat you get from clubs and players and stuff, it's not worth it. Um, so I'd say just, I think you've just got to find your sort of level in terms of what you feel comfortable writing about, the subject, the sort of mediums, or, you know, in your case, podcasting. Um, and I think you've just got to, got to run with it. I think if you start trying to be something you're not and you start trying to, you know, throw yourself out there as some sort of, you know, YouTuber or, you know, some sort of shock jock or whatever, and it doesn't, it's not in your nature, then it's it, it's going to come back and bite. And I think that's the difference between sort of, you know, 10 years ago and now. I think there's a sort of, I think someone said, I think there's a guy on Twitter who, he was basically being edgy, um, but I don't think it's being edgy. I think it's basically selling out. And even, you know, Ultimately, to gamble, they might not pay off as well. Because if you're trying to do it to get in the gig, of, you know, I was still not even going to give you a five-second sniff, then mm. you're basically just wasting your time. So I think that's, I think that's the only the advice you give in terms of, you know, how you, you adjust as a chain. Because everything's like, it's breakneck now, isn't it? You know, Twitter, you know, you've got Twitter, you've got, you know, people doing Facebook broadcasts from games and stuff like that. You've got, you know, everything's got to be instant. Everything's got to be instant. But, you know, if you're not comfortable doing instant and, you know, basically breaking your neck to do it which I, I personally not with that sort of thing and you know it's not really my sort of cup of tea I'm more of a, a print uh, medium person so and, you know it's what I've grown up you know reading what I've grown up looking through you know in, in newspapers magazines you know it's a sort of market I sort of feel comfortable you know writing for and, and pitching to rather than doing a um, you know broadcast or doing you know live broadcast and stuff like that I mean I did try before the Edmund West Ham games to do like TikTok and it was, it was so uh, it was so unbecoming of me. It was just basically me walking around Goodson Road with my phone in the air and trying <laughs> to think of imaginative things to say. Unfortunately, I think about three people tuned in, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't death by live streaming, but it was uh, pretty bad. So you know, I'm still learning, you know, from the from the era of my ways on that sort of thing. But I think yeah, I think there is definitely a change in the landscape where everything's got to be out there. You know, five seconds ago, if not if not earlier. And I think, you know, a lot of people sort of try and roll with that. But I think if it's not for you, I don't think go for it because it's really not worth, you know, stressing yourself out and, you know, basically making an arse yourself to the world, I think. Solid advice there. Authenticity. Yeah, that's a, that's a good shout. Now, you've, you've told me that you've covered Champions League finals. You've covered football in, in different countries, which is something that I'm really hoping to do over the course of my life and I'm sure a lot of people that you know listen to this and, and students that's what they want to do as well and if I'm not wrong when I looked on your website the other day I saw that you've interviewed Raheem Sterling ahead of a, an FA Cup final now are there any particular interviews or experiences that stand out for you for the right reasons or like the TikTok and Goodison Road for the wrong reasons? 
I think it's be quite positive about this. I think probably the, the one that I'd be remiss to mention if it would be the World Cup in 2018. That was um, it's probably the only time I'm probably going to get to the World Cup before 2030 because obviously the next one is in Qatar, which you know unless unless I, I can mortgage my house three times over, I'm not going to be able to get to that um, huh. without you know making a loss. Um, the one after that is 2026 in USA and Mexico. I mean, we don't know. You know, Trump might be terminated by then. So you know, he, you know, he's probably not leaving the White House. And you know, I don't really fancy going to that sort of neck of the woods if, if they're going the way I think they're going, which is, you know, a sort of terrible charge extreme of where where the UK is going right now. So mm. at the moment, that one's off the table. Um, and then we're looking at 2030. I think it's Spain and Portugal are putting a joint bid in, which would be brilliant. But obviously, that's that's you know a good while away, it's ten years away. So you know, Russia was probably the best chance of getting a a major, major international tournament. I mean, I know stuff like, you know, there's like the Nations League, there's like Champions League, there's Europa Leagues, uh, the Euros, but the World Cup is the, the ultimate. Um, and I did it in, I did a sort of two-week group stage um, excursion, so I sort of flew out on the, the day before the, the opening ceremony, did the opening game. I mean, to be honest, I went out with, on a bit of a wing and a prayer because I didn't really know until, until the last probably week before I went whether I had passed the games because it was all sorts of done ad hoc at that time so um but miraculously i think every game i applied for i think i got a pass for um so i think i did something like i think i did like 10 games in 14 days or maybe a bit more might have been 11 in 14 um involved a lot of traveling i was based in moscow but i was practicing on a, on a red eye flight to and from sochi every couple of days um and, but that was a great experience because there were some great matches there i mean i saw um the Spain Portugal game, the three all. Um, that was, that was a game. That that was some game. That, that was incredible. That was. I, I mean, I, I was, you know, I was, I was, get, I was rolling at like five o'clock in the morning to Moscow Airport, getting to my hotel, get a couch to my hotel, quick, quick nap, change, and then straight off to Spartak Stadium to go and do Argentina and Iceland, and then sort of it was kind of constant until about I think, you know, probably one or two days off in the whole two weeks, and then um, I decided that. I come back because I thought, you know, I'll be burning through money from just staying here. Um, as great as the experience was, but it was wonderful. You know, the fans were everywhere. It was sort of what you'd expect the football culture to be mm. for a major tournament. And especially with, um, I mean, Russia sort of relaxed its, um, its disorder laws. So basically, you know, where having a party in the street was, was frowned upon before the World Cup and after it, of course. Other people in the street having parties. Every night you went out into Moscow, the centre of Moscow. There were people dancing, there were people having parties, there were people having gigs, and then um, so it was a great experience. But obviously, you know, I couldn't be there for the entire tournament because I, I think I probably would have. I probably lost my own. It was that expensive out there. But um, I went back for the final, not thinking I'd be getting a pass. Um, but when I got it, I sort of, you know, I got it on the Friday afternoon, and it was a mad panic trying to get flights booked to get to Moscow for the final on the Sunday. Um, so I had the sort of thirty-six hour. Uh, trip from insanity to get to and from Moscow um, to go and do the final and I think I was in I was in Moscow for about 12 hours in the end I think it got in about it was something crazy like that it was something 12, 14 hours I was in Moscow and the all I had was, was a bag on my shoulder which had a, a change of tops a, a can of deodorant a razor and your laptop and that was it and that was literally all I went with that and, and you know we banged cards so you know that was done on the hop but it was the sort of thing I thought I might never do it again and, you know, probably not for a good 10 years at least. So to get that one in at the age of what was it, 31. So, um, 
you know, to get a World Cup final at 31 was pretty major. And obviously, you know, seeing you, you know, I'll print the next morning. And obviously, because I, I was doing it for a Far East market, well, it was about, I think, about 11 o'clock in Russia or 12 or midnight in Russia. It was going out in, in the Far East. So I was being able to read it in the middle of Moscow. That was a really nice feeling, knowing that wow. I've been done that. Um, second to that, I'd probably say, would be my first Champions League final in 2017. I mean, I've done um, I've done Europa League finals. I've done Super Cups when you were in Monaco, which is in itself one to say because obviously Monaco is not used for that anymore. So you know, going to that stadium, going to that part of the world, it, it, it's you know, it's a memory. But Champions League final, uh, especially in Cardiff as well, yeah, it's just incredible. You know, Cardiff's a great city, and you know, everything centralised. You know, it's, you can practically walk from one end of the city centre to the other. So, and, you know, that's basically everything incorporated. So, you know, you're mingling amongst the Juventus fans, the Real Madrid fans. Um, it was probably the first game that had been under under the roof uh, for the Champions League final. And obviously the Mandzukic goal, which I think you'll, you'll know yourself, yeah. the overhead kick, which was equal. That, that is now, for me, to see that and to, to see the flight of the ball from where I was, because we were um, we were positioned opposite the um, the tunnel. So you were seeing the flight of the ball and how he was how he was moving his body to to, to, to execute it. Mm. It was unbelievable, and it was just. I mean, Remedric came came back and, and won four one in the end. But obviously, you know, it was it was one of those moments that that you really had to be there to see it. You know, it's one of those goals that you'd never. You know, I'll never see anything like that again in my life. And you know, I've seen some great goals, but nothing that sort of takes your breath away like that. And there was people around me sort of aghast as well because it was yeah. it was incredible. Um, and I think probably I mean, top three, I'd probably go with um, first time I covered Barcelona as a journalist in January 2018. I went to the new Camp. Um, and I, I tried a few times to get passes for, for Barcelona games, but obviously because the demand is so heavy that, you, you know, you basically, it's up to chance whether you get in or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'd flown over on the Friday. Uh, it was a bit of a strange time because my son had just been born a few weeks earlier. And, uh, you know, my missus was like, well, why are you going over there now? I was like, well, you know, there's a chance I might get in for this one based on what people had told me. And I, I got the pass uh, confirmed on the eve of the game. So I'd, I'd flown all the way to Barcelona from Liverpool. I basically picked up in the city and I thought, I might get it. And I'd, there's been times when I've gone there and, and not had a pass. And I've been waiting till last minute to find out. Um Fair in the worst, obviously, but obviously I thought, you know, I can make the best of it. But mm. when I got this one, it was just, it was an incredible feeling to be able to go into the, to the press uh, desk, get me past at like 10 in the morning. And it's a strange experience in Spain compared to England because whereas in England you have like press facilities and food and all that, Spain's very much sort of relaxed. It's sort of, you know, if you buy, you can bring drinks into the ground, you can bring food into the ground, you can buy stuff in the ground. But in terms of press hospitality, there's nothing. So basically, I had to go to. I went to a bar nearby, and I think I, I think I had a drink and got a, got you know a package up a sandwich and stuff like that, and packed up a few drinks, get my bag, go through. Yeah, so obviously that's the sort of culture there. And what made it even better was it was against um, Alaves on a Sunday night, and it was a, it was weird because they had fifty thousand in the ground, but it didn't feel like it. It felt like there's probably about twenty thousand, but there was definitely fifty thousand in there because of how big the stadium is. But yeah. Because of the upper tiers and all that, you don't you sort of see everything cascading down, so it looks a lot smaller than it is. And then it, it was strange because it was kind of on a knife edge till about I think the 84th minute, and then Leo Messi just stands up, kills a free kick in, job done. Ah. 
So, I, I, what was really annoying, though, it was just after Coutinho had left Liverpool. So, I was writing about Coutinho and, you know, it, Coutinho was the introduction and then he goes and does that. Yeah. And I was, I was kind of stuck there thinking, I'll move in this, but I'm hating it at the same time because I was <laughs> planning to do me, do me, do me on the whistle, drop it in and then go down to the press room, do the presses, go to the mix show, try and grab a player. Um, and by the time I'd rewritten it and all that and files, um, I'd missed the presser. I think the only player in the mix on was Jordi Alba. And he was finishing up. So I was sort of I sort of lost this sort of full new camp experience. But um, but just to be there to see Messi score and I mean I I, I love Barcelona. I mean I don't, I don't think anyone who, who sees my Twitter is pretty obvious how much I love Barcelona. But um, you know, to cover them as a as a journalist rather than a fan, you know, you can you can go as a fan, well you could go as a fan, obviously not anymore at the moment, but uh, you could go as a fan pretty much. You know, every couple of weeks, months, which I did quite a lot before lockdown, and I think it was there in February as well. So, you know, I did it quite a lot, and you know, loved the match experience. But to do it as a journalist, I think that is the the ultimate to do it in the current setting. You know, in the stadium that was hosted the the eighty two World Cup, hosted the nineteen ninety nine Champions League final. You know, it's seen so many great players. It's seen you know the the Cruyff teams of old, the sort of Guardiola teams of, of you know a decade ago. To go in there now in the current state. And it's probably similar to the Goodison experience. You know, to be able to go into Goodison now, it will trump anything you see at Bramley Road Dock because you've mm. got that heritage, you've got the understanding of what it's like, what it's like when it's when it's absolutely rocking. And you feel part of it. And that's what that's why for me that that's gotta be my top three because it was such an incredible experience. Um, in terms of, you know, covering the match, as stressful as it was. I mean, I, you know, I cover games everywhere, cover games old Trafford, Wembley. Um, I went to the West Fallen Stadium. Um, for Dortmund, mm. which I'll get on to about the interviews in a bit. Um, but that was a big letdown because it was a Champions League night in November two years ago. And it was a really poor game against Club Bruges. It was really not happening. It was like it was like a game of chess, basically. And you know, you're expecting all these sorts of, you know, you get told this vision of what the yellow wall is like, you know, it's got these big massive displays and all that. Mm-hmm. It was nothing like that. It was just flags and scarves, which is, you know, it's great in itself, but you know, when you when you when you you know you see all these things on social media, you know, the choreography of the old wall and how it brings everything up and you know how the games are all so vibrant and that, you know, end to end. And this was just like a real board draw and you know, it was very cold as well, to be fair. So I felt a little bit sort of short changed by that, but obviously, you know, football isn't you know, you, you, there's no guarantees in football, is there? So, you know, you you might go to a game and it might be absolutely dying, you might go to another game, not expecting much, and it might be absolutely brilliant. So you know, you take the rough with the smooth, but um, I mean, Dortmund was a good experience because of the interviews I got, but I mean, I can come on to that in a bit if you want. No, definitely. I've just, like, just those three stories alone, man, that's, that's exactly what football's all about, isn't it? And they're, just, they're things that I really, really, really want to tick off my bucket list before I'm six feet under. It just seems like a dream. And as you say, there's always that sort of element of unpredictability. Sometimes it'll go your way, sometimes it won't. And I think as low as the lows are, it is all part of the of the industry and what we're involved in, I guess. Now, that I mean, you can touch on the, the Dortmund in, interviews here, but one of the things I also did want to ask about is that you talked about covering the Camp Nou several times, and I was very fortunate enough to, to have been there uh, several times as a kid to watch uh, Reichardt's team and whatnot, you know, made up, got to see like, like Leo when he was coming through, Ronaldinho, Eto, all players like that. And yeah, you make a, an excellent point in that the culture is something just completely different. Uh, and then you look to Germany, I love German football as well. And I went to see um, 
when Everton played Wolfsburg over at Wolfsburg when they were in the, the Europa League and that experience is just something that I'll never forget. So, just David, how would you sum up the differences in culture across different countries covering football officially? I think it probably changed. I think it varies from country to country, but I think there are similarities. I think in terms of like um, Spain and Germany, I think I feel quite comfortable, you know, saying that I've, I've had a good experience. So it feels more relaxed. I think. I mean, this was something I noticed um, when I went to the Europa League in Hamburg ten years ago. It was sort of my first introduction to sort of how different it is. And you know, you look at the cultures around it. You know, you know, you'd have the sort of the fan cultures. You'd have the tifos. You'd have the you know the pyrotechnics. You know, I mean, people can walk around the street swigging a bottle of beer and the police aren't, you know, ready to sort of cuff you and bang you in the van. Yeah. And it's that sort of, a, you know, there's a degree of trust with sort of German football and, you know, I mean, people weren't being, you know, flanked for the tickets on the on the Metro. You know, you, you had to have had, you know, bought one validated one and, and they trust you, you know, they do spot checks and stuff, but there seems to be more trust in supporters um, in Germany as opposed to in the Premier League, I'd say, especially when you look at the way, you know, Fans and we've seen it this week are being treated like cash cows, and you know you're just there for the product. You're not there to be part of it. You're there to be a marketing tool. Whereas in Germany, I think they understand. You know, I mean their league, their league and their their structure as a well, national football. It's, one, it's wonderful, isn't it? I love the way they they handle their stuff. The, the federation and, and how the governance of football in Germany is. I think it's second to none. That's massive, and, and you look at the fifty plus one rule. I mean, I did a bit of um, exploration on this because I did a few. Um, pieces for the few people on RB Leipzig when they were, uh, funny enough, come up against Calon Chossi's Bayern Munich for the Bundesliga title in 2017. And, you know, I spoke to people at the club, I spoke to Ralph Hassan, who I spoke to um, Peter Galax, who's a goalkeeper. But I also spoke to, you know, people who cover the Bundesliga, either as, you know, um, on the ground reporters or, or people like um, Kevin Hatchett, who's a, a commentator based in London. But their knowledge about it and about the 50 plus one model is that, uh, you know, it was an education because you you sort of see why people don't like Leipzig and why they're sort of you know a bit of an upstart club. Um, but at the same time, it's not it's not necessarily a bad thing because they're, they're sort of an outlier. You know, it's not like um, not like other clubs are going to start following their leads. Mm. But even if you look at it, I mean, you you know, Bayern Munich basically every sort of partner on Bayern Munich's brand is, is, is you know on the board is like a super brand. You know, Adidas. Um, T-Mobile, you know, they've got Coca-Cola, they've got people like that, and then you look at, like, Schalke, they've got, you know, um, you know, they've got people on there, you know, there's loads and loads, obviously, by Leverkusen, they've got the, you know, the background with the chemical factory, which is obviously a bit different, but then you look at, like, Hoffenheim, you know, Dietmar Hoff's got his, um, his SAP brand, has basically just become sort of, you know, funneling money into the club, so, you know, this 50 plus one model is admirable, but it's obviously open to scrutiny, but, um, in terms of culture, though, it doesn't trickle down to the culture. You don't feel like you have this sort of, um, sort of like a sort of, I don't know how to describe it, like a sort of off-limits sort of feel like you have for the Premier League. I think there's sort of, Premier League has this sort of thing of, you know, well, you know, this is our brand and, you know, you just can't touch it, basically, unless you're paying, you know, crazy money to be in the ground or you're paying crazy money for, you know, cheap chocolate bars or for video games. You know, you're, you're not a part of this, basically. And that's sort of, in Germany, there's obviously the, the tiered fighting and, you know, I think it's was it fifteen euros a ticket? I think they were they were getting and, and fans actually revolted when they were planning to hide that up, and then they revolted again when they were planning to put games on Monday nights for TV. Mm. So, you know, the fans are listened to, whereas here they're not. And in Spain, probably just as much. I'd say I'd say there's definitely a sort of you know an acknowledgement of how important the fans are. But again, I think they're probably a bit more aligned to the the Premier League in that 
they see the tourism aspect and obviously, you know, the tourism aspect can only last so long with Messi being there and, you know, Real Madrid having, you know, when they had Ronaldo, obviously they had to they had to milk the cash cow as best they could. But um, those two leagues are still far and away from what the Premier League is. The Premier League is just basically, you know, I mean, it is basically, a, you know, a, an homage to greed, isn't it? And you saw that with the TV tickets, you know, £15 a game for people yeah. in a struggling economy, in a country that's going into recession. Many people are on furlough. A lot of people are going to be in local lockdown. It's criminal. And that's the problem. That's the problem. Anyway, your fallacies have always been wrong ever since the beginning. And even so, when you look at that, um, the Leicester this week, about, you know, we want fans to come back to ground, but knowing that the government won't sanction it. They did that because basically they didn't want to have to bail up the AFL. Hmm. So that was that was their reason for doing that. And then they, they're now, because they're not getting the revenues coming in as freely as they were, free lockdown. For obvious reasons, you know, people haven't got the money to buy merchandise, people haven't got the, you know, the means to get to games because of these restrictions. They're now trying to sort of fumble around and trying to, um, you know, rake in the money whatever way they can. And as I said yesterday on Twitter, watch how quickly the, the clamour for fans to be allowed back goes quiet now. They, they can milk them from the living rooms. And that's the problem with the Premier League. It is just basically and money put next time for, for all of these people, these clubs and these uh, organisations that have attached to it. So, in terms of obviously, you know, we don't know what's going to happen post pandemic, but I, I mean, I trust Spain and, and um, not France, Germany to um, continue sort of volume and forces a lot more than the Premier League. I think the Premier League have just got the, the completely wrong approach to fans. And, you know, it is that thing of fans not cust- uh, customers, not fans. And I think that's a massive, massive problem. And, you know, They've had how many opportunities to sort of solve these issues before we got gripped by a global pandemic, and yet they still went down this route of let's bleed them dry, let's make sure that they don't get the bare minimum, let's make sure they they do not feel the product as much as people in Germany and Spain and even France and Italy. You know, there is that complete detachment, and I think the Premier League, you know, has to take the can entirely for that. And you know, the sort of the whole culture is brought around it. And I think, I mean, I think. when you look at it, I mean, I don't know how you actually um, fix it. I think there is going to become a tipping point with this £15 a game uh, viewing fee for streams. I think people are going to turn away from football, turn away probably from the clubs in terms of what they used to do. And I think mm. that's, that's coming now. And I think you've seen it already. I think you saw a few people saying what they've seen on message boards about fans are going to turn away and they're not going to pay £15 to watch Burnley West Brom on a Saturday night. And, you know, eventually that, that's going to, it's going to come home to roost, I think. And, you know, I think the Premier League should have been careful what, what they wish for in terms of putting this out there. But I, I don't think they actually care anymore. I think you look at the way that the whole Newcastle thing uh, unravels. Um, yeah. And, you know, and with this now, I think, I don't think the Premier League care about who they, who they piss off because I think they'll, they'll just think, well, if you piss off someone in Burnley, then someone from um, Jakarta will come over and come to one of their games against Man United. If someone in Liverpool is disenfranchised, by the way, you know, uh, they can't get into Anfield. I was all right. There'll be someone from Australia who'll come over. And unfortunately, that's the way it's gone. Whereas in Spain, there's, there's a sort of balance of, well, we know the fans are important because the fans keep keep the game going while the tourists are taking pictures. Germany, it's even more so. It's sort of, you know, the fans of the life. But here, I think they could take them all even. And that's quite depressing, to be honest. Yeah, I would say so. And, you know, given that I, you know, submitted my undergrad dissertation on, the, you know the the significance of media coverage and broadcasting and the the lessening significance of match day revenue uh, and the over reliance on on broadcasting revenues this certainly is a 
and interesting time and, and as you rightly outlined especially in this country there's certainly validity to to your views and that just the the binary nature broadcasting today in the business model that seems to be be adopted by the premier league now one of the sort of criticisms that came back from my dissertation was it's not yet clear the impact that COVID-19 and the pandemic has had on the industry uh, in relation to broadcasting and media. But um, I beg to differ, and I do think some of the points that you made really back that up, really. Yeah, I mean, I think the I think there's definitely been an impact, positive and negative, for the media industry. I think you look at, um, you know, when there was no games on from March till mid-June, people were taking payments holidays, weren't they, on the... Um, like with everything in society, you know, people were taking mortgage uh, holidays. But I think people start pausing the Sky and BT subscriptions because they just thought, well, what's the point of paying for it? I mean, I'll be honest with you, I, I had a, um, a subscription for all Eagles TV um, on, on a sort of on-demand service, and I kept it running until about sort of project restart, and I just thought, what's the point? You know, I'm not, gonna, I'm not seeing any games, I'm only seeing reruns of stuff. And I think a lot of people were sort of of that opinion, you know. How many times can you really watch, you know, a re- rerun of a game from December on Sky Sports Football that you've already seen, that you, you saw it in the flesh if you went to games as a fan? You were basically paying out. It was basically dead money, wasn't it? Um, but obviously now, the sort of, you know, the trade-off with that now is that, you know, these £15 pay-per-view games, which is basically um, basically a resurrection of the old... Um, the old box office thing that came up around about 20 years ago. I forget what it was called. Was it Premier Plus, was it? I think so. Yeah, Premier Plus, I think it was. And that, I saw it in my bed for it, one of the, one of the, um, the Everton accounts tweeted it um, earlier today. And, it, you know, it, it equated, I think it was about £40 a month, I think it was. And I think, oh, I think it was £40 a year. It was something crazy, like, it, it basically worked out that for whatever the games you get, it was like £2 a game. Now, you look at that and £15 a match, you know, and you've got to pick and choose your games. You know, whereas you did have that luxury of, you know, everything being in a lump sum. So I do think that the pandemic's definitely uh, bringing out the worst in football now, more so than, you know, than the detrimental impact it had on them. I mean, you look, how many clubs tried to fill the staff? There was Liverpool, there was Tottenham, West Ham were one way. You know, there was, there was a few teams who, who tried, tried to fill the staff using the government handout scheme and when it was you know basically told them that actually this is bang out of order you're taking a piss um, they all reneged on it but then this is going to be the sort of you know the clawback from that because they'll they'll now because only Leicester actually voiced opposition to this this £15 a game pay-per-view uh, this is the sort of payback the clubs who couldn't fill the staff or were, were, were shaming to not fill the staff Um and now going to get their own back this way. And I mean, I think it was interesting that only one team did voice opposition to it. But as I said uh, on Twitter, the caveat is you don't know what sort of lies have been spun by the Premier League, by the broadcasters to sort of sway the clubs into voting. Because mm-hmm. it might have been a case of this is the only way you're going to keep your revenue from the broadcasting. Um, don't worry about it, it'll be a, an affordable fee. Now, £15 in a recession. Um, with people in local lockdown, like in Liverpool, like in most of North, Northern England, you know, North East and North West, that's not attainable. And I do feel like a lot of clubs who would have spoken up, like Aston Villa, like Everton, um, you know, teams like that were basically sold a dud. And I do think, unless, you know, it's proven to be wrong, I think they were basically, basically uh, let down the garden path because the broadcasters want to get their own back. 
the big clubs want to get their own back. They all want to get their fight of the pie. Um, and, you know, how much spending was done in the window? It was, it was ridiculous, wasn't it? You know, and there was some managers breathing poverty. We can't do this. And then go and spend 50 odd million on two players in two days. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. Football is, is, is the biggest hypocrisy in the world, I think. And, you know, if we didn't love it so much, I think it would drive a lot of people away from it. And, you, you know, you wouldn't entertain it. And I think some people will end up going that way. And I think it's because of, you know, basically this, it's become a, a sort of thing of, you know, it's checks and balances this whole pandemic, you know, the sort of the clubs and the media organisations who are the driving forces, your BTs, your Skies, um, the Premier League, their partners, you know, the member clubs. I think they're all in this for what can get out of it because, you know, when sports are coming back, some are going to see a bit of a drop in football because people aren't going to stand for it. I think some people have been, become disillusioned. I mean, I, I know I know people who have seen six goals at Liverpool and they are so pissed off about the way they've been treated by the club mm. that literally they missed out on the biggest moments in their, their history, modern history. They couldn't see their team with the title. They were told, stay at home, they sent you over. They've followed all the social um, distance and things. They see people bouncing around on the streets celebrating with no regard. They want to be a part. They want to be a part of the celebrations, but they were told they can't. And then the only thing the club can give them is a fucking shitty chocolate bar. I mean, that's the sort of thing where we're, we're getting with people, where you know, getting to the point where they're thinking, you know what, it's not worth it. It's not worth paying seven hundred pounds to basically be denied, you know, something which which was basically given before this pandemic kicked in. And I think a lot of people will turn away from it. I think, you know, I don't, I don't think everyone's going to be in that extreme category. I think with those, you know, it's it's a lot unto itself as a club, but. Uh, I think others will turn away. I think United fans will turn away. I think probably Newcastle fans, you know, while my hats there, will turn away because this is of what's happening now. Uh, I think some Everton fans might turn away because they're missing the, the feeling that the sort of detachment with the club, which is very much part of the community, you know, it's a, it's a massive part of the community. And, you know, because of these restrictions, you know, the usual practices of, you know, checking in with people, you know, having the, the, the hubs open around Goodison, you know, having the sense of community around match day, some people might get lost from that because they're not knowing when it's going to come back and they might just give up hope, sadly. And yeah, I feel like other clubs, other clubs are, are probably, it's going to be a bit more sort of um, commercially driven and sort of financially um, dictated. I think people will turn away from that. So I think everyone's in it for themselves. I think it will, it will bite a lot of clubs in the long term. But then again, as I say, for the big clubs like United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal, they can just ferry in some tourists when it's safe to do so. And, and that's the thing. I think a lot of them would prefer that rather than having, you know, people who've been going for 30 plus years, you know, some cases half a century. They'd rather just push them off the door unless, unless somebody's going to come in and spend £500 in the club shop on one weekend compared to probably £500, you know, on non-match stuff in an entire lifetime. So I think there's going to be a bit of a, a bit of a tipping point I do think is, is coming. And I think a lot of people who you know, I've been told that they matter and I've been shown now that they don't really matter to these clubs and to the, the league and to the organisations who have got the um, the broadcast right. I think a lot of people are going to be sort of pushed away and become more armchair fans than, than, than they would have liked to have been probably a year ago. Yeah, oh, I know. You, yeah, you're right in saying that. And for, for me, it, it is such a massive shame to see. And one of the great points that you made there, I uh, can definitely... Uh, I can definitely resonate with it is the fact that that, that element of ritual has just been completely taken away from my weekends and 
it's had obviously had a massive knock-on effect to, to to the week as a whole. Obviously, there was that period where there was no football and it was just reruns and rewatches. But now, um, it just it, it absolutely kills me, uh, especially given the fact we've made up what our best start in about one hundred and six years and. You know, we're sitting here watching it from a couch, and and it stings. It, it stings a, an awful lot, and it it's just bizarre to see the culture and the admiration that was so so beloved from sixties, seventies, and eighties, early nineties. Uh, that's just been completely flipped on its head. That the culture has turned towards commercialization and, and commodification, and that sort of ruthless business structure of turning fans into customers it's strange uh, and that was one of the conclusions of, of one of my interviewees for my dissertation is that there may become a time where there's obviously going to be a, well not obviously it, it's uncertain but the, that potential drop off in viewership and interest and the knock on effect of, of that's going to have with, with broadcasters now I think we, we've seen that in and I think it was a Chinese one of the biggest Chinese broadcasters cancelling a, a certain contract with the Premier League and as I say, it, it's certainly going to be interesting to see um, how that pans out in, in the future. But now to to move on to the book, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing about. Uh, and obviously we've talked about, you know, the sort of, I think it's just part of human nature, really, that people are very binary. Um, you know, Real Madrid and Barcelona, Dortmund and Bayern Munich, Milan, Juventus. Like, especially when it comes to, to football, it's just, it, it, down to its core, what it is really, it's tribalism. Um, but in regards to, to fine margins, obviously the book that you've recently published, I've got a great deal of admiration for people who can publish books because, you know, it requires a great deal of, of effort and dedication, whereas, you know, we touched on it earlier when we were talking about the climate of today, you know, there's people that can just condense it into a Twitter thread and buzz off getting a few thousand likes and retweets, you know. Um, and in regards to, to Manchester City versus Liverpool, just on a, on a personal note, I think personally it's always going to have some sort of significance to me because the day that I moved to Manchester away from home, it was the uh, the day Man City beat Liverpool at the Etihad 5-0 when um, Mane tried to boot Edison Zed into the Asda car park. Um, but given United's stagnation since Alex Ferguson left, you know, I think, what was it? The money came in from the, the City Football Group in 2008. Um, Man- City, uh, of no doubt, emerged as Manchester's best football inside. And, and obviously on Merseyside, bar a few commercial blunders down the years, the uh, director of football, Michael Edwards, uh, and the vision of Jürgen Klopp over the last five years has just completely reignited Liverpool into becoming the best team in the country uh, and the best team in, in Europe last season, definitely. Uh, I know you've delved into the archive for this one, so I'm really looking forward to this. How did the ball start rolling on this project? Well, it started like, like a lot of things. It started late at night. It was um, it was actually November last year, 2019, when, um, you might remember this, when uh, the FA was trying to get ahead of the story that Raheem Sterling and Joe Gomez had come to blows in the England canteen hmm. 24 hours after they, they, they clashed on the pitch downfields. Um and it was sort of a strange thing because I, when I was seeing, obviously, the FA were trying to get ahead of the story and then the papers were following it up because, obviously, they'd been told to hold back till 11 and about 5 till 11, the FA put the statements out. I put a tweet out sort of quite glibly just saying, you know, when someone actually looked back at this, this Liverpool Man City rivalry, there's one hell of a book in it. And then 
I had that moment of realization of like, why have I done that? I deleted <laughs> it straight away because I just thought, you know, um, you know, I just thought it's gonna be one of those sort of. It's one of those things that sort of, you know, if you don't do it, someone else will do it. And I yeah. thought someone else will do it. And then, um, but I started researching. I reached out to two publishers. Uh, I think one was in Australia, funny enough. And then I found one in the UK, which just pitch. Um, and I just pitched, I, I, I just sent it over and said, I've got this idea for the book. Uh, here's what it is. And he said, well, we like the concept of it. Um you know, how far back does it go? And I, I'd had a few conversations with um, Gary James, who's quite a renowned Man City uh, author and a, and a Manchester football historian. He's really, you know, knows his stuff. And he mentioned something um, during a couple of email exchanges I had with him about the subjects, about, you know, it goes back to the 60s. So I thought, well, OK, that's good. That, that, that gives me something to work with because I knew it was stuff a bit, you know, a bit further along from the 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, so it came up from there, and then it was sort of, you know, you need to have a sort of a way count. And I think, I mean, I spoke to a guy who did, um, a guy called Colin Miller, who did the Frying Pan of Spain book, which was also published by Pitch. And um, he said, aim for 100,000, 70,000, 100,000 is sort of this sort of benchmark. So I thought, oh, okay, fair enough. So I thought, I'll try and make it as definitive as I can. Um, and obviously, the tagline is, you know, how they forge football's ultimate rivalry. And I've had some really you know, snotty comments from really sort of, you know, the rivalry comments, you know, about how is it the ultimate rivalry, this and the other, you know, there's bigger rivalries. And I haven't said it, there's bigger rivalries than, than it, because there absolutely are. I mean, there's a, a book actually someone's doing at the moment about Arsenal and United um, fusing in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, which I think is coming out in about a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's already in the pipeworks. And then, you know, when was it Barcelona, as you say, you know, Milan Juventus, you know, I mean, what I find really strange was that, like, Liverpool Manchester United is, is sort of, you know, the most celebrated sort of rivalry in the Premier League in English football. But actually, if you actually delve in and look at the sort of, you know, the needle in it, it's it's very minimal, actually. Um, but that's why I call this the ultimate rivalry, because it's, it's, not a, it's not about, you know, how big the rivalry is. It's about what the rivalry encompasses. So it encompasses violence, Subterfuge, you know, competitiveness, you know, poaching each other's players or trying to in some cases. You know, there's a lot of ways to this. It's not just a case of, you know, it's the biggest one because Martin Tyler shouts about it on Sky Sports, or it's the biggest one because, you know, everyone knows about it around the world, like to do with, with El Clastico. It's about what the layers of it, you know, incorporate. You know, there's been all sorts. It starts basically with, um, with City beating Liverpool to, to sign Dennis Law in 1960. And it's carried on. I mean, there's no question that it's it's got bigger over the years. And, you know, especially, um, I'd say, post-2012, which got massive, especially when you look at the title races that the teams have had. But there's always been something there. And there's always been, you know, players who've, who've crossed the divide and players who, who don't cross the divide and, 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 and nearly do. And there's all these sort of layers to it. So, I mean, that's how it came about. Um, writing it was, was quite tricky because, obviously, you know, you're in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, people who had agreed to interview sort of drop off the radar. I mean, I won't, I won't name them outright, but there was a few who I thought were going to be absolutely brilliant contributors. And unfortunately, with, with everything that happened, you know, they had their own things going on. And, and you know, I completely respect that. And I didn't push the envelope with them because of that. But fortunately, you know, I had enough from both sides of former players who, who spoke uh, on record. I mean, I did approach the clubs directly and say, we're doing this. And City were quite 
quite honestly said, thanks for no thanks. I'm going to pull sources when we're down a bit of a garden path. Said, we'll get you this, we'll get you that, we'll try and get you this. And, you know, all the interviews that we promised end up getting given to other people. You know, I saw people players who were who had asked for uh, to do a quick phone call with, uh, doing Zoom interviews with people. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to play it like that, fine, but don't don't lie to me. But um, fortunately, mm. as I say, there was enough former players who, who came to the table. I mean, I, I reached out to a lot of them. Um, I had a couple of colleagues passing a few numbers, but most of them I got off my own steam. And um, one of them I was quite proud of was um, Glenn Pardo, who recently died in, in May. Uh, I'd spoke to him about three or four weeks before he passed. Um, and he was absolutely brilliant. And I was, I was kind of really... You know, I'm delighted to get that one on record because, you know, I don't know if that was the last interview he ever did, but if it was, it was a bloody brilliant one. And um, mm. really good about the 60s and, and shows Ian Calgan and obviously shows to Joe Royal um, about, you know, being a Man City player, being a Man City manager and that sort of thing. Um, but it was strange because because of the way everything lines up, I only did one face-to-face interview. Um, out of all the 19 people who contributed, the only person I actually sat down with was um, Andy Morrison, who was the ex-city captain, who's now managing Connorsky Nomad, and I interviewed him um, on my way to Anfield to cover Liverpool Shrewsbury in the FA Cup. And I, I, I remember even thinking, I'll get loads of these, I'll get loads of these, I'll be able to meet them face-to-face, be able to set it all up, it'll be really nice and straightforward, and then I ended up doing every other interview on the phone. <laughs> so it was... Uh, it was strange, but I've got to say, some of the contributors who were um, who have actually given the most had so little part to play in, this, in the actual rivalries. I mean, the ones that stick out for me are um, there's a guy called Jim Whitley. Uh, obviously, him and his brother Jeff played for the city in the late nineties. Jim Whitley never played against Liverpool in any just competitive surrounding mm. apart from the reserve game when he played against Mike Owen. But he was so insightful on what it was like playing alongside Steve McMahon when he left Liverpool for City, what it was like having King Cody around the team, you know, what the sort of culture was like when Joe Royal turned up, you know, all that sort of thing, you know, what it was like coming up against Michael Owen in a, you know, as he was about to burst onto the scene. And he was absolutely brilliant. And then on, on a similar uh, note, um, Ian Bishop, obviously ex Everton player, um, Scouser. I was from, from America and Ian played against Liverpool twice. But some of the stories you can tell, some of the stories he tells about those games alone are absolutely superb. I mean, he tells this a great one. I won't really give too much away, but he's a, he's an Arsenal fan. But he ended up going to Liverpool when I was a kid. And because he'd been with his mates and his mates' brothers and that, when he played at Anfield for the first time with City in 1989, he said he, he just froze. And it's that sort of thing. It was like, he goes through these different emotions about how he froze and then he came up against Steve McMahon, who he used to clean the boots off at Everton yeah. and all this stuff. And there's all these like, little, little tales alongside it. Um, so everyone who contributed was absolutely brilliant. And I've got to say the last one, um, the last contributor who was up in the timeline was um, Michael Ball, the ex-Everton defender. And he was absolutely brilliant because he gave a bit of an insight about what it was like being on the inside at City when Abby Dabby took over. Because obviously they had, they had to show watch to come in from us in the air, deliver them nothing. Mm-hmm. And he said, we just bought, here we go again. And he just said, you know, as, as, as you saw these players getting linked and all that, he just saw what was happening. Um, so there's so many people who, who contributed to it. And I've got to say, you know, some of the chapters might surprise some people, especially when you look at sort of, I mean, there's one about Georgie Kinkadi because 
I mean, people forget Keith Conti nearly went to Liverpool. I mean, I know he says he, he would never have, have gone there, but Liverpool were definitely serious about trying to make a move for him when um, when City had been relegated. So clearly there was uh, there was an intention there, and going through the archives, there's so much stuff where Keith Conti says, "I'd love to join Liverpool. I'll either join Liverpool or or join Barcelona." There's always like an intimation, even though he, you know he never actually betrayed City fans. There was definitely an intention there from the quotes that he's given on numerous occasions saying that he wants to go to Liverpool. So that sort of, you know, feeds into it. And then obviously, you know, Nicholas and Elke, I mean, you could, you could spend an entire podcast talking about an Elke. Um, so, you know, there's a there's a, an interesting story in there as well. There's quite a few bits about him. And, uh, you know, that's probably, the, the, the I think, the most complete chapter of the book based on, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, the book isn't, you know, quite a well-rounded uh, piece, but in terms of like from start to finish, when you're, you're following this player's journey, it's absolutely fascinating. When you see when he goes from PSG and to City by Liverpool and he leaves City and everything about it, everything that happened with him, it's absolutely remarkable. And, you know, we were lucky that um, Sylvan Distan spoke about him because obviously Distan was in with him at PSG as a youngster mm-hmm. and then played again with him when he came back in 2000, 2001. And then, he obviously went to Liverpool, this time went to City uh, by Newcastle. And, you know, you see all these sorts of, you see what he's like. And it's, it's so fascinating. And then, I mean, you can see why he's doing a documentary made on him because he's such an incredible uh, phenomenon as a, as a person. You know, he's so so strange, so so enigmatic. Yet, he was such a terrible player. And, you know, I did a bit of a breakdown of, uh, of the impact he had on Liverpool when he was there because, you know, he scored like, five goals in 20 odd games. But then you look at the impact he has on the players around him. Mm. Michael Owen, Emil Heskin, Yari Lippmann, the goal tallies were, were vastly improved when he was on the pitch in the second half of that season compared to before he turned up. So, you know, everything in this book that sort of, it all relates to Liverpool and City. There's not really a sort of, I mean, there's more City ex-players contributed because, I'd say, we had more Liverpool lined up, but I think everyone everyone sort of contributes something to this, and it, it's really fascinating how um, how well rounded it is. But I mean, the trade off with that is there are. I mean, I, I'm quite perfectionist when it comes to proofing stuff. So, I mean, I won't send an article in if it isn't flawless. And you know, if you see stuff that's you know repeated more than once, or I've used you know an adjective you know more than once, then I'll, I'll kind of go back and redo it. Um, yeah. Because of the pandemic, because of games being put on hold, our deadline got pushed back. Um, to incorporate the game at the Etihad, which obviously meant we, you know, one way or another, we'd know if Liverpool had played um, the game that would win them the title, or in, in the case, as it turned out, not play the game that won them the title. Mm-hmm. So all that stuff sort of pushed the deadline back. So whereas we would have had time to prove everything uh, and go through everything with a fine tooth comb, we had to basically, I think we had finished it on the third tonight after the City game. And by the Saturday morning, everything had to be signed off. So, so proof into a lot. The only thing that, that hadn't been signed off was the ebook, um, which we managed to catch a, a few more of the sort of typos and, and you know little bits here and there that sort of you know were edited out. Um, so it's it's a lot more fluid in the in the, in the uh, ebook I think than the, the print book. But obviously you know to get it over the line in the current circumstances I think it was probably quite remarkable. But as I say, we did only ourselves short of time because of Project Restart because it wasn't coming back until mid June. I mean, if it come back probably two weeks earlier, I think it would have been all right. But because of that, everything got stressed to the limit. So, you know, we had to make sure everything was, was as close to close as we could get. Um, 
So, I mean, if there are people reading it and they do spot the errors, then I can only apologise for that. 100%. I can understand where you're coming from, from being a perfectionist. I genuinely don't feel like you've got any need to apologise after publishing your first book. I think it's a, a fantastic achievement and going off what you told me there about the experience of collating the book together, it sounded absolutely fantastic. Just to, to get both perspectives here, uh, I just wanted to, to ask a question on City and then ask a question on, on Liverpool and just get your responses in that regard. And you did mention it there when you were talking about Man City in around 2012. Obviously, there was that false dawn under Shinawatra uh, and the Thai takeover. But when City won their first Premier League title uh, in 2012, I really do feel like that birthed a new era within the Premier League um, forming, you know, the top six rather than the top four. Having studied at the Etihad uh, and worked the, the City Football Group summer camps last year, um, I've got to say I've got nothing but admiration for what's happened at Man City, its involvement in football, like, the, you know, the, the renovation of East Manchester has just been, you know, when you see what it was like before and now what you see Soccer City afterwards, it, it's just completely un- unbelievable but prior to the investment you know as you mentioned there we're talking about some classy and players like that in the, in the 90s City were no stranger to the second division you know going up going down as the song goes like what were your main observations on Manchester City prior to the ownership of the City Football Group and what do you think the biggest changes have been since I think the thing with um, with City was, I think you, you know, you, you go back a bit further than the you know what three, you go to sort of the sort of the end of the Peter Swales era. I mean, that was um, that was quite a grim period. It was it reminded me a little bit of Peter Johnson and Everton, you know, promising stuff it not happening, and then you know ended up with basically you know in financial disarray. Albeit Swales was over a thirty-year period, whereas. Um, Johnson was only there for a good few years, less than a decade, I think it was. Um, but I think City structurally, I think, I mean, I think once um, Franny Lee's weird stargazing experiments ended, because obviously he had these these flamboyant plans and they didn't come off, um, you know, the club was basically taken over by uh, two guys called John Wardle and I think it's David May, I think it is. Um, they were, you know, Manchester fans, and they were actually involved in um, in JD Sports, uh, in the foundation of it. So, you know, they were they were sort of big, um, they were sort of big retail magnets, and um, you know, but they were very much City fans, and they sort of, I mean, they negotiated the deal to move to to watch now the Etihad. You know, did this negotiate quite a really good uh, deal? I think I, I get the exact amount, was like a million a year. I think it's I think it was a 200 year lease. I think it was at the time. Um, which to move City from, from Main Road from you know the spiritual home in Mossside, which was a great ground, but unfortunately had a limited scope in terms of what they could do with it. Yeah. I think that was a massive, massive turning point. And obviously that paved the way for Shinawatra to just sort of come in on a white horse and then ride out as quick as he came in. Uh, and then I'll be obviously saw um you know the potential there and differently to to what how much gear he's got with Everton. You know, they had everything in there, the infrastructure was practically there. All they really needed to do was obviously uh, upgrade the sort of the training facility because they were still at Cannington at that time. So to move from Cannington to the Etihad campus, 
um, was a big step. And obviously, you know, it, it wasn't taken lightly. And, you know, they, they had, they had, but they had more money to spend on players, probably, that they would have done if they'd had to build and relocate to, uh, you know, a new purpose-built stadium somewhere away from Main Road, which is obviously similar to the Everton situation of, you know, Everton are trying to build Bramley Moor Dock. You do wonder if Bramley Moor Dock was still in existence if Bar Harvey Stadium had come in in 2016 with a new stadium already built and uh, endless, you know, resources, whether that would have, uh, would have changed, the, the, you know, how the club, um, how the club's path went. But you just don't know. Unfortunately, these things are, are down to, you know, um, hindsight a lot of the time. So, I think I think City, though, have been, and they've taken some Cameron's the Abu Dhabi group, let's not forget, they've been accused of all sorts, you know, some people are conflating them with, you know, human rights abuses, you know, and that was the big thing about the UEFA um, ban that was thrown out of court over the summer. You know, they've had to take some absolute crap that, you know, a lot of owners in this country have not had to face. I mean, I don't even think Abramovich has faced anywhere near this much. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, he's had his, you know, his residency um, visa rejected, but Nothing on the level that City have faced from, not just from you know the Premier League, from you know football fans, but from you know the actual media in this country. I mean, you you, you know you look at the absolute jubilation from some hacks in February when City were looked like they were going to be two years out of the Champions League, and it was absolutely disgusting. And it, it did both. I think it bordered on you know on xenophobic and, and racial you know um, leanings. So I think City's owners to come out of all this with a head held high. To continue doing what they've done to have, you know, brought in this success they brought. I think, you know, all power to them because they have had to deal with some absolute shit. And I think that's the only way I can in cast garage. Yeah. You know, there's probably more polite terms, but that is the only way I can describe it. They've had to put up with some absolute dogs abuse. And, you know, if any club deserves um, to be a riding high finally, I think it's, you know, second to Everton, it's Manchester City. They've had to go through some absolute you know, ordeals, you know, as you say, yo-yo spells in the Football League, you know, they went down to Division 2, let's not forget, came back up again and then managed to consolidate themselves as a Premier League club for mm. the best part of nearly 20 years now. So, I think if anyone deserves the credit for, for finally coming out the other side, I think City deserve it and I think all powers are their own, personally. Yeah, definitely. I, I would echo that. Uh, in regards to Carl doing on Mubarak, I think, as you say, all power to him and, and the business that he's managed to do. Uh, you look at the the global presence of of the City Football Group right now; it's just absolutely, you know, sensational what they've managed to do over the last ten or so years. Now, moving on, finally to to Liverpool. Um, I, I guess right. This is coming from my sort of childhood recollections. I always knew Liverpool were a big club. Yeah, I'd never dispute that they were, weren't a significant or big club. Obviously, being brought up on Everton's successes of, of the 60s and the 80s, I knew just how how big Liverpool were in the 70s and how they rivaled Everton in the 80s. Now, when it came to me in my teenage years, when I was going through high school, that was around the time Benitez left and you had Hodgson and... Daglish come in for his second stint as manager. And in all honesty, Liverpool were a joke at times. Actually, you've got the Hicks and Gillette sort of uh, the ownership situation, which had them close to, to real danger. But, you know, in terms of competitiveness, 
Everton were seriously always up against them. Obviously, yeah, we got the poor record in the on derby fixtures. But in regards to, to sort of league positioning, we were always their sort of neck and neck rivals. And you know, given Moises' last two seasons in charge of the club, Everton finished above them. And and right, like you rightly said before, uh, when we were talking about the sort of the brand value of Everton, it feels like at the time when Jurgen Klopp came into Liverpool, and um, when he took his hiatus when he left Dortmund, I was really dreading the worst that he would go to Liverpool because. Obviously, there are the, the similarities, in a sense, between Liverpool and Dortmund, given their sort of, I hesitate to say cultural following, but the, there's obviously that sort of, that sense of community and the sort of, the under-realised value of, of the brand itself, the sleeping giant, if you will. Um, so, given someone that's worked in the industry and covered them during that time, what have you, what have you made of the resurgence of Liverpool uh, and how have they managed to consolidate themselves into the force that we've seen today? Well, I think, they, I think they've had to spend big, haven't they? They've had to spend big to actually get players and who are capable of, you know, elevating them to that level. You look at Virgil van Dijk, 25 million, Alisson, 65, Fabinho, 43 million, Naby Keita, 52 million. Mm. You know, these aren't, these weren't cheap signings. I mean, you're probably, probably you know, they brought in that Thiago Alcantara for, for whether you, whether they, they say it's on the, on the drip, it's 25 million, you know, Diego Costa for 41 million. Do you have to spend to upgrade the squad? Yeah. No question. I mean, you know, the idea of Moneyball, which was Fenway Sports Group's uh, mantra when he came in and, you know, it, it really didn't work. You know, he had 20 million on Stuart Downing, you know, 7 million on Charlie Adam. I mean, Jordan Henderson, to be fair to him, has actually paid off because of, of how compatible he is within various, you know, uh, tactical styles and formations. Yeah. But I don't think anyone else that part in that list actually comes out as a as a genuine quantifiable success. And even you know, you look at the the year after Barini came in, uh, they tried to sign Prince Dempsey, you know, you got Nori Sahin on loan. You know, they, they've had to, they've gone for this real trial and error system. And it was only really, you know, um I mean they struck lucky with Luis Suarez, let's be honest, they struck lucky because that was the same when Nogi was Torres uh bought Andy Carroll. So you know, in terms of actual successes, Liverpool until about probably I'd say twenty sixteen when they signed Mane and when Alden players like that, you know, whether you did have to pay big money for them and then try and scrimp, um, which I think was a very harsh lesson for, for FSG to learn, to be honest, because you know, they thought they could just use the Billy Bean model of let's, you know, low value, high high sale, that yeah. sort of model. And they thought that, that was gonna work and it doesn't work that way in English football. I mean, if it did then Billy Bean wouldn't be supporting Arsenal. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, even Arsenal spent crazy money, even on wages, and you know, signing Luis and signing uh, William, you know, Nicholas Pepe obviously came in. You know, uh, uh, you know, th- this idea that you can just you know spend very little and get maximum returns, it does. It's not a uniform model, and I think that's why FSG had to learn the hard way. Even before Klopp came on, they were learning that the hard way, um, and I think that's been. You know, that's been one of the things that they've, they've taken away from this. And that's why, you know, he went big for Klopp rather than getting essentially a budget Pep Guardiola in, in Brendan Rodgers again. You know, getting another, you know, short-term fix um, who's promising, you know, the earth on, you know, a Houston budget, which is essentially what Rodgers, when he started out, was trying to do. I mean, even you look when, you, um, when he went for the title in 2013-14, you look, I don't think any, any players actually came in for more than £10 million. I think Iago Aspas was probably the most expensive signing. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. No, sorry, Toei. Toei. Um, obviously, Saka was the, the marquee channel at 18 million, but, you know, him aside, I don't think they actually spent more than 10 million on any other player. I think I think Mamadou Saka was probably the most expensive signing um, in that window. So clearly, you know, the money ball principle was still in effect then. And then the year after, obviously, they, you know, it all fell apart. You know, they started spending a bit more, signing the wrong players. But then they've obviously now got this structure of having um, Sporting a director rather than the archetypal director of football that they had with Damien Kamoli, um, who was just basically just buying anyone who, who he thought be a good fit. I mean, there seems to be a, a strategy of, you know, does this player fit, fit what we want to do? And generally, you say, yeah, I mean, there have been exceptions. You look at, um, in 2018, they just lost the Champions League final and they tried to sign Nadal Fakir, who's now at Real Bessis, mm-hmm. um, who was at Lyon at the time, and his, his medical basically came back. Told to the people at the club, uh, came back that his knees were, were not all they were, they were, you know, Needs to be to be a a Premier League footballer with pace, so you know they passed up that one. But I think probably you know that's the sort of thing. If it was he was probably a sort of player that you know Jaden Shaqiri benefited from. You know, then who's now on him and Shaqiri comes in because he sort of has that sort of profile of a you know an impactful player with a bit of pace on him. Um, so it's been a bit case of having to find players who suit the style the club wants to play, who's up to the task. Of the physical demand he puts on them, and I think that's been a big thing. I think we've, we've had to, we've had to, we've had to really find a way because you know, I mean, there have been a few lucky strikes, especially even if you look at, um, you know, the Hicks and US here, Fernando Torres coming in, he obviously knew it was cozy, um, but the players around them, I mean, I don't think anyone really was what you call uh, first in quality for a club of Liverpool's stock at that time, you know, they've just been to, to two Champions League finals in three years. You know, I don't think Yoshi Van Ayun or Ryan Babel were, were ever going to be cut out for that for that sort of level um, mm. of a club of those aspirations. So I think, you know, finding players that suit the profile rather than suit, you know, a shoestring budget has been a big thing. And I think FSG, you know, has to come through a lot of hurdles. And as you mentioned about the Everton, um, I think it was called the power shift, wasn't it? I think they called it when uh, Everton finished above Liverpool twice in as many seasons. You know, I think that probably could have, I mean, if, if Everton probably had got a manager with a bit more of a defensive mindset than Rebecca Martinez, but had that same, you know, attacking freedom. I think Everton probably could have, you know, made it three or four, and maybe Everton would have finished the ball until for the third season, and Liverpool wouldn't have even been in the title race. You just don't know. You mean, mm. you know, a lot of things came came together for Liverpool, especially Suarez coming back from a, and it was it a ten game ban for fighting players. Mm-hmm. I think it was his second, second biting ban. I think it was 10 games for Bank Ivanovic. Um, you know, and, and I think he came back with, with a point to prove, especially after the whole half of the bar. So, you know, that was a team that was, was more than the sum of his past. You know, when Gerard was ageing, Daniel Sturridge was just about getting run together and Racking Stern was coming up. But, you know, it was basically resting on Suarez's uh, goals more than, you know, solid defence. So I think they've had to learn the hard way. And I think that's probably. I mean, it's a long winded way of saying it. I think we've had to learn, learn hardly. I think that's the only way I can say it. And, you know, they have learned the mistakes. They've not, you know, I mean, they're still making mistakes, obviously. You know, they fell over the staff. They tried to charge fans £77 a match ticket. You know, they're making mistakes still. That's, that's undeniable. But on the pitch, there seems to be an understanding between the technical team, which is Klopp, his assistant, and, and Mike Edwards, the sport director, and the, the FSG hierarchy, which is Mike Gordon, um, and then. To a slightly lesser extent, because they're, they're a bit more removed, Tom Werner and John Henry, 
yeah. are looking at it and thinking, right, well, we need to start understanding what they want rather than what we want. Because they, not, they, you know, I mean, that's the Dempsey signing that never was. Definitely felt like a, a marketing ploy by the owners. I mean, I don't doubt that Brendan Rodgers didn't want him, but I think FSG probably started realising it doesn't matter if a player, you know, sells shirts. They'll sell shirts if you're league champions. They'll sell shirts if you're European champions. Yeah. You just need to have a team that gets there. And unfortunately, um, they, they, I think they realised a bit too late because I think if they'd realised sooner, they might have won that league title a few years sooner than they did. Um, but obviously, they're still learning. And, you know, I mean, they're now 10 years into English football. They've had to learn the hard way, really, because, you know, I don't, I don't know many owners who... I've had the fans on the back and still live to tell the tale. I mean, you look at the Glazers, I mean, they're clinging on. Mike Ashley's clinging on. Um, you know, you even look like Arthur Cronky, who's getting hit, getting down the banks. Villa, uh, mm-hmm. I've had a few of them seen off. You know, even Daniel Levy, you know, who's a homegrown uh, administrator. Him and Joe Lewis are getting pelters from Tottenham fans until this Gareth Bale signing uh, came in because I think they felt that the club was going in the wrong direction. So, you know, you don't tend to come out of these things with your credibility intact if you make too many mistakes. And I think they they managed to put the handbrake on that before it was too late. Because otherwise, I think if they carried on down the route of, you know, showing a complete um, lack of nuance towards the fans and towards the club supporters, I think um, I think they would have uh, ended up probably in the same position that Hicks and Duet would have done. But I think they had the, the presence of mind to actually say, we don't want to be like them. We want to do it our way. We want to mm-hmm. do it right. And I don't think they've ever, I don't think their, their intentions have ever been anything other than honourable. So I think it was just a case that they had to get everything together. And I think it, it, it's now coming together, but you just don't know, do you? You just don't know uh, what's going to happen. Obviously, you know, no one saw them losing 7 2 against Billy. So, you know, you don't know what the future's going to hold, but they seem to be able to go in the right direction at the moment. Yeah, I would say so. You make some fantastic points there in regards to the. The ownership uh, and the hierarchical structure of Liverpool and how that's adhered to that of a, of a winning organisation. Uh, and for me, I follow Dortmund relatively closely, um, and I have done ever since um, ever since they beat Malaga in the in the Champions League a, a good few years ago. I think it was in like 2012. That's when they really captured my imagination, and I really did fall in love with Klopp, Klopp's side, and. And his sort of philosophy of football, and I think what I was at a loss at a loss for words for before was the the club culture that he creates. Ultimately, I feel like he just hits the nail on the head in the culture that he creates at a football club. Now, he's obviously enjoyed the most successful days of his career, managerial career over these last few seasons, and at times we've seen him sort of lift the mask. Uh, of that sort of positive, uplifting coach, uh, moaning. Uh, but aside from that, I still can't bring myself to say anything negative about the man. I think he's absolutely fantastic at what he does. And now we're obviously another dynamic to the the City and, and Liverpool rivalry is the, the tactical head-to-heads and the clashes between Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp. To what extent... Do you feel like that influenced the book? And how long do you feel like this two-horse race will sustain itself? Well, I mean, from an objective point of view, I hope the two-horse race sort of sustains itself for probably half a season because, you know, we need to have more teams like Everton, like Leicester up there and, and battling it out. Um, I do think the Klopp and Guardiola dynamic is definitely part of the... Um, of, of, Probably it was a driving force in the book because I think that sort of 
where it exposed into life. But obviously, you know, before that, there was Pe- um, Roberto Mancini and Brendan Rodgers. There was, you know, um, sorry, Pellegrini and Brendan Rodgers. There was Roberto Mancini and Kenny Magalish. Um, you know, going back, back a bit further, you know, you look at Benitez and, and Kevin Keegan, um, Julian and Joe Royal. You know, there's, there's always been these sort of, I even go back to like the sort of Joe Mercer, Bill Shankly era. There's always been these sort of um, dynamics and different styles coming into play. Um, but I do think the sort of, I mean, Klopp and Guardiola have really raised the bar. I mean, exponentially, you know, I mean, two teams getting, you know, 198 points um, over two seasons is is incredible. You know, to do what City did um, and then to do what uh, what Liverpool did, you know, in matching them. I think you've got to have some real sort of intensity to do that. And, you know, I think this, I think probably players of previous decades probably wouldn't have been able to sustain it. You know, obviously, you know, every, everyone's got to be a lot fitter. You've got to have, have, you know, sharper technical attributes. You know, your pace has got to be absolutely spot on. You know, if you go out and have a few pints after the game on a Saturday, you're going to really pay for it in the week compared to probably 30, 40 years ago where, you know, you could have a drink and, you know, you could sort of not, not phone it in, but you could sort of ease off a little bit in training and, it, and in part of games when there's a bit of a lull. Whereas now everything's completely great, you know, breakneck speed. And, you know, I think I, the concern is going to be is if one of them pulls away again, more than anything. Um, because obviously, City have had that drop off since yeah. 2018 19. You know, they, they fell massively away um, last season. We'll lose the games they shouldn't have lost. I mean, I mean, I know people will, will pick on the, you know, the losing to, to Leicester recently, but Leicester were. We're on, on good form and City obviously have, you know, injuries and COVID related uh, issues. So, you know, I don't think you can be too um, scrutinising of City for that. But obviously, there's, you know, there is, there does feel like a bit of a drop off. And especially when Guardiola was saying about how if he's going to stay around at City and, you know, stick around beyond this season, he's got to earn a new contract. I just get a feeling that this might be. Uh, um, it feels a bit of 2012 Barcelona feels to him at the moment. Mm. You feel like there's not not so much of stuff has been knocked out of him, but you feel like he, he knows he's come up against a machine similar to the Real Madrid team with me. It's me who are finally going to overcome him and overpower him as he's done in the league. And it does feel like if he can't, re, you know, cap that magic again. I think he, I think he might walk. I mean, I'd love to hope he doesn't because he seems quite settled in Manchester. But if he doesn't feel sent to Southwark, that feels he merits another contract, that could be dangerous. But similarly, I mean, Liverpool could end up in that sort of phase they've done when they've they've gone close to titles and not won them. I mean, you look at historically, you know, Benitez is last season. Was, yeah. You know, after finishing second to United, and they completely fell away. Rodgers, season after the uh, the last full season, he was in Scars before Klopp came in. Completely fell away. Huey completely fell away. You know, because they made the wrong sign, they made the wrong um, additions, and the team started to show its limitations. I don't think that's going to be happening with this Liverpool team, and especially with the players they brought in. But by the same token, um, you know, you don't know if these if these three results that keep happening in the Premier League at the moment, you know, Leeds getting three goals and Anfield building after Liverpool, you know, if you play, if games are going to be a little bit less predictable. And less formality, like you know, it might take it out of Liverpool. And you know, we know we know that the physical exertions will take the toll eventually on on any team. As we seen with City playing at that, you know, consistently high level sublime football for two seasons on the bounce. Yeah, 
I think it could, it could happen with Liverpool. So the danger is if one or both of them fall away, you know, you're letting the people sneak in. I think, you know, Chelsea have got a good a good shout if you can get their act together with the team that they've got now, with the, you know, the additions they've made. Everton are obviously leading the table right now. You know, you don't know how far that momentum is going to take them. So, you know, if, if Liverpool and City drop off, one of them or both, it's going to let people in, in through the back door. And unfortunately, you know, I fear, I fear that it's going to happen to at least one of them. Uh, I'd love it to, to continue the way it's been going for the past few years. But, I mean, it's that thing that Ferguson said, wasn't it, about, you know, every team has a three to four year cycle before you need to start, you know, burning the deck, kicking things up, you know, suppressing it. Whereas, I mean, there seems to be incremental tweaks that Liverpool are making. City are sort of replacing, you know, what they've lost in Sané and, and company. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I feel I feel like they're both, they're both um, prone to the drop-off. So I, don't, I don't think they will both drop off, but I think one of them might drop off. And I think, you know, I think that is, that is that's the cumulative effect of what they've been they've been doing for the past few years because it's like it's like with a with you know a heavyweight boxer, you can't keep keep doing twelve rounds every week for the rest of your life. And you know, in football parlance, you know, it's two three times a week. You have got Champions League, you got you know League Cup, FA Cup. You know, if you go into the sort of you know the knockout stages of, of like you know the Champions League, that's even you know you're doing you know games two three times a week. So essentially, you're having three knockout bouts of twelve rounds every week. I mean, that's going to knock at anyone. So, I mean, yeah. I know it's obviously a bit of a crossover, but I mean, that'll knock at anyone. And I think that's what we're seeing with these two teams. I think, you know, Liverpool had to pull away from City to sort of get this title over the line. But City sort of, I think City will basically, will feel the limitations. And I think Liverpool might feel the limitations for all the signs they made. They might feel them. You just don't know who's, it's who's going to blink first, I think, this season. And I think that's what's going to be the most telling. It's which team drops off. I mean, City have had a drop off, so Liverpool. You know, you can't just say it after three, four games in the Premier League season, in a very weird season with, you know, behind closed doors, settings which which altered the dynamic of matches and, and how they play out with, with refereeing decisions and, you know, home advantage. You don't know how, how it's going to manifest. Uh, but I think both teams probably are more vulnerable to having a drop-off now because they've both been performing at that level than probably at any other time in the past few years. Definitely. That's a... I think that's a well-informed prediction, really. It, that that's completely correct. I, I feel like you know, nothing lasts forever. Uh, and in regards to the the health of the competitive nature of the Premier League, you, you would like to think that the that, that sort of the binary narrative does retire itself, and we see a birth of, of competition as as we sort of outlined before. That certainly uh, the, there's room for player new teams to break into the upper echelons of the league. You know, we, we mentioned from there and Everton, how they're going at the minute. Wolves have played exceptionally well over the last couple of years. And of course, Leicester, given how they've invested since winning the Premier League in 2016, uh, are looking like a, a real threat at the moment. Now, Rich, I just want to say this certainly is up there with one of the, the, the favourite podcasts that I've done. I, I've loved listening to some of your stories and of course the research into the book. I know this most certainly won't be your last appearance on the podcast. And I, I just want to say for obviously for the people that are listening and people who are interested in getting their hands on the book, where can, can people get a hold of it? Well, it's a bit tricky at the moment because no book shop seems to be stocking it because as soon as it goes in, it goes out, which can't be a bad thing. But um, it is available on Amazon. You just search for fine margins and it, it, I think it's the first thing that comes up. Um, 
So uh, it's not actually on a reduced price now. It's normally twelve ninety nine. I think it's about ten pounds for if you don't prime. So um, if you've got prime, you can probably get it at knockdown price. And also you can get the ebook as well. So if you want to read it on your phone or on your Kindle or whatever, you can do that as well. So it's uh, it's probably more accessible online than it is in the shops at the moment, which is quite surprising to be honest. Yeah, staying where we're living at the moment, mate. Rich, thanks very much for your time, mate. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. No worries, Max. Cheers for having me on. Thanks, man.